This is the Young Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mindele. Everybody to all and welcome to the latest moment of the Young Governance. My name is Nimrod Mindele and thanks for tuning in. As always, it is my pleasure to be in your company as you continue to probe a number of topical issues. Before we go into tonight's uh, menu, let me say thanks to Kate Kayla, Amakhele Banga, Samuel Stein, Mendy, Lindiwe, and of course, Tabo, who is navigating a principal um, at the city at the moment. Um, one of the things that perhaps maybe I think to put forward upfront um, you know, is the fact that as a proponent of corporate governance, um, you know, the issues that we talk about on the show resonate very much well with what happens um, you know, in South Africa today. For example, when we look at the, the issues around the Zulu Commission in the state capital, at the heart of these issues are typical uh, control issues, are typical ethical issues, are typical around those of engagement which are from time to time you know, being violated by those who are entrusted uh, with the power you know, to, to, to deliver on its own mandate. The main almost wants to say, when you talk of governance, what comes to mind and the extension with governance related to issues um, you know, uh, we are seeing at the, at the, state of, uh, at the Commission of Inquiry. Firstly, it is about um, ethics and ethical conduct. And secondly, it is also about the extent to which the rules of engagement um, that are sacrosanct are often uh, violated by those that hold uh, power. Um, it is on this basis that from time to time we look at you know, the landscape, social and economic landscape of South Africa, purely from a corporate governance point of view. What did you to really um, immerse ourselves and say, if South Africa has been defined as a thought leader, um, when you look at your King report, when you look at your, you know, your Companies Act, and, and these other you know, um, well-thought through policies around corporate governance, why are we where we are? Uh, in a state of, um, you know, corporate governance, mishaps that we're seeing today. I mean, if we have the national constitution in the context of the public sector, and of course the private sector, when we have, uh, you know, PFMA, and with King Codes and Companies Act, um, what happens when, you know, um, deliberations at the Central Commission of Inquiry um, brings about issues such as fruitless waste expenditure, fraud, and brazen corruption? These are issues that, at the heart of the conversation, has to do with corporate governance. I mean, when we look at um, or listen to testimonies um, that have been, you know, provided at the Commission, one is only shocked at the extent to which more governance has really permeated different structures, both within the civil society organizations, state-owned entities, and government departments as a whole. Um, you know, South Africans have, have come to terms with brazen looting that has been taking place. And the question is, um, is the subject being elevated? Um, is it more that Mr. I, or are we really changing the tide? On that note, let me implore you, uh, right, as, as always, to engage with us. Our service line is 24549. My email address is nimrod at high.co.za. of course, it's uh, at high FM. So, good evening welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, so, one issue that I want to, um, to, to, to discuss with Unachi, for example, he says, when you look at the continuum of governance, um, the role of regulator um, has a direct bearing on, on, on the state of affairs we see today. We know regulator NASA uh, from time to time uh, you know, regulates the tariffs that every single household ought to pay. Um, you know, ESCO will approach NASA, say, for this financial year or for the next year, uh, it's like, what is it about? And NASA would, would approve that or would cut down. And it, it, I just want to hear your view because not a slightly different view as to the extent to which we can't divorce you know, the current mishap um, and we can't divorce or exclude in our thought processes or at least in our interrogation of issues at ESCO. We can't exclude or divorce the role of NASA. What do you talk on, on that? Uh, I am not familiar with, with, with the working of NASA, but I do have a sense that uh, NASA has to take some responsibility for first going on ESCOM. Uh, it can't just be about ESCOM going to NASA every single day and out um, without NASA play, playing it, it's, it's, it's oversight. Um, and I think they've got that responsibility. Yeah, I mean, every time they make an assessment as to whether they increase times or not, um, you know, where is that in? You know, that's always the decision. Thank you very much, Nzo. Unfortunately, we're not really getting through to what you would have given us yeah. a, a, a fairly thorough insight on the role of NASA in relation to, um, um, you know, in relation to which NASA ought to have mitigated some of the challenges that we've seen at ESCOM. But hypothetically, my view is that, I mean, which is something I wanted to discuss with him, that yes, regular has its own role and responsibility to provide regulations, you know, around tariffs uh, and, and, and expect to which tariffs vary the expenses, you know, in that kind of, of environment. And, and I wanted to be from fundamentally that as much as, you know, a regulator has a specific role to play, ultimately, from a government's point of view, you know, the board of ESCOM and shareholder are ultimately accountable. And, and I, I would be very really interesting to see how he's able to link regulator that is independent of operations. And yes, obviously, it funds, you know, it allows the tariffs, or the, you know, it would allow the increases on the tariffs on the basis of the submission that ESCOM is providing. But not as it may, my, my you know, point of view is, is that very strong is that I don't understand why, um, you know, NASA would be so much involved in the kind of mess up that you've seen, because it's always that over the oversight. Yeah, um, you put me on the spot there, because United is actually an expert, because he, he was a regulator himself, uh, so he knows these things. But conceptually, um, if ESCOM goes to NASA and asks for, you know, for, 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 for interest, you know, it would be odd if NASA, um, on, on the one hand, doesn't um, have any interest in the cost structure of ESCOM. It would be odd if um, NASA, on, on the other hand, doesn't um, 
make as come account for its expenditure for how it uses the money that it got from NASA. At the very least, you would expect that from for, for, from from NASA make as come account uh, for you know for for uh, for the funds that it gets from NASA. You know, um, and that, that's as much as I can go with NASA. I think uh, it's a bit you can get hold of. Not I sat down and I wrote about this issue. I mean, there is no matter before, and and really get into the task of our third position, which is um, you know the deliberations that we've seen um, to date um, as part of the the, the Solar Commission into the state capture. Um, I was quite fascinated yesterday when I heard the, the representation by the former DG Fuzile Ndisa on one of the reasons why he resigned, um, and, and which, which for me really cut the nerve um, around. You know, partly, you know, when you get the government's relationship with the Treasury, uh, it's in terms of its oversight in relation to expenses of expenditure, which ought to happen or to be approved in all SOEs, for example. I mean, one of the critical issues that he mentioned, which which resulted him in, you know, um, resigning, was the the, 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 the nuclear deal. Uh, he pointed out last night that, um, as part of his, um, you know, representation, that it would have cost more than a trillion rands. And South Africa was definitely in a position to afford that, you know. And, and for, for him, that was just a bit no-no. But it was also very interesting to see how, um, you know, uh, he was able to garner support from the very, um, you know, which, 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 someone who operates at that level ought to be putting, you know. So, um, just before we get to the point, I believe, I'm not, I believe, Ulati is not online. Ulati, welcome to evening. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, for a moment, I thought uh, online was disappointing. Thanks for holding on. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, as I introduced you to listeners out there, and I pointed out that in our, in our conversation, we were wrestling around the role of the regulator vis-a-vis operation of ESCOM. And, and I maintain that I mean, the regulator in the context of ESCOM, which is NASA, has a specific role to play, of which um, does not have a direct bearing on how entities manage its affairs. In my view, the operation of ESCOM internal governance sits with the shareholder as well as the, the board. And, and could you give us a sense of, in your view, the extent to which the regulator cannot be divorced from what you've seen at ESCOM? Uh, thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, there are a number of um, approaches to economic regulation. The first thing that I'd like to say is that if you, took, if you compare the economic regulation framework for ESCOM, it's slightly different from the economic regulation for AXA, for example. In the AXA example, um, the regulator is responsible to ensure that AXA is financially prudent. In other words, if something goes wrong in the finances of AXA, the regulator is, expectedly, is, is expected by legislation to do something about that. Now, the question arises to say, in the instance of ESCOM, why is the regulator not allowed to play a role? Because ultimately, ESCOM's income comes from the tariffs. So if by design, the regulator only influences the tariff and when the damage has already been done, then what, what, how else does the mechanism help us to ensure that ESCOM survives? Because part of what the economic regulators can do, and that's the example of that I've just given you, is to influence the financial running of the organization. There are two approaches fundamentally to um, economic regulation. One is that you can regulate ex post. In other words, the company goes and does whatever they think is right, and then when they are done, they bring that to the regulator, and then the regulator approves or not approves. That approach is ex ante, where the regulator and the company agree beforehand on what the company is going to do. That includes both capital costs and operational costs of the company. Now, typically, most companies do not, especially SOCs, would not agree on their ex post one because it's a bit risky for them because they can expand, and then later it is not approved by the regulator. And then the shareholder is forced to, or through their retained earnings, is forced to pay for whatever the difference between the tariff that they've been given and the tariff that they asked for. So if that forces the companies to be financially prudent. And, and in the case of ASA, I believe that the regulator has played a significant role to ensure that ASA continues to have financial prudence, regardless of what the governance model or what the board of ASA decides or what the management of ASA decides. The tariff that is going to be paid by the users is a tariff decided by the regulator. So I'm saying, perhaps in the evaluation that must be done on what has gone wrong at ESCOM, we must evaluate the entire system, and not just evaluate the governance of the organization, but evaluate what role the regulator could have played to try and deal with the damage that has been done. For example, I mean, it's a common problem that you have with um, the, the cost estimates that you get from, from, from major capital projects. And one of the things that in the aviation or in the ASA regulator that you, you, you without it in my experience, is to show that there's a more accurate estimate of costs for major capital projects. And, and that limits the risk for all the parties that are involved. But if the, the, the regulator approves 25 billion, and then the company comes back at 75 billion, I mean, that's just not, that, that just shows the entire economic regulation system in the disarray. So, I'm saying there's a governance issue, but I'm also saying that there are other things that we've had, we have around ESCOM that could have used to try and ensure that there's some continuum of financial prudence that happens there, even if we use only the tariff to do that. I hope I've explained my... No, it, it makes absolute sense you know, in that um, any assessment of um, ESCOM uh, current uh, fiscal constraint has to be looking in, you know, more, much more broadly when I'm just looking at the, 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 over, just looking at the governance and the shareholders' assessment. But here's my, my question, Nati. I mean, it's almost a, a common cause that a regulator's, one of the regulator's um, central um, contribution is that of financial prudence. 
you know, what could be very really interesting comparison between AXA as well as, as NASA. Um, is it a matter of your assessment in terms of um, financial prudence when it relates to, to, to ESCOM? Is it a matter of policy or is it a matter of practice in the context of the regulators not obviously being, 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 not being present, i.e. being found wanting when it's supposed to interrogate um, issues that, that have to do with, with the tariffs? Thank you so much. It might be that maybe the regulators acted according to what the current framework prescribes. In other words, you want to say that it is the regulators' fault on what has happened. But if you take a panoramic view of what has happened, then you must start asking the question to say, under such circumstances, what else could we have done to prevent what has happened? And I'm saying the first port of call in such a situation is the person who decides the tariff that ESCOM charges. Because a lot of the revenue that ESCOM earns is from the tariff. So that person, can, and, and in a practical sense, um, and daughter, you, 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 you can fully manage the tariff by managing the capital expenditure of the companies, or both costs, whether it's operating costs or the capital costs, because those are the two major costs that always influence what the tariff should be. So if you don't have a way of managing those two costs, or having an influence as a regulator on those two costs, then chances are very limited on what you're going to decide on what the tariff is. Let me make it a very practical example. If you are, sorry to use AXA as an example again, if you're AXA and you want to build a midfield terminal at the Oral Town International Airport, and you've estimated that this is going to be 30 billion rents, it's the regulator's responsibility to make a decision whether the system can afford that 30 billion rents. In other words, the current users can afford that 30 billion rent. If the conclusion is that the users cannot afford the 30 billion rent, then the regulator simply does not approve for us to build the mutual terminal. And then until the circumstances allow for that to happen, so that the system can be able to absorb and afford the tariffs that are going to come from that capital expenditure. So we have a situation where something happens and is built into the ESCOM, ESCOM builds something, or ESCOM does something with its operational costs, but no person has said, but can ESCOM afford this? Mm-hmm. And, and the best person to do that, assuming of course, the independence of that regulator, is the regulator who is going to decide on what the tariff should be. Because the, the, the total or a majority of the revenue of ESCOM comes from the tariff. So if the intention is to, is, to, is to do economic regulation against state-owned entities that are monopolies, and there's no, no, there's no influence on how the cost structure of the company is, then that economic regulation is not as good as it should be. Because then you end up in a situation where the costs have escalated, and now, it's, now we point to the board, but from a regulation perspective, what's the difference between the management and the board? There's no difference between them. So the person who will independently make a judgment, assuming of course that the regulator is free from all political influence, is the regulator because he's the person or she is the person who decides what the tariff is. So I'm saying in this instance we could have put in an extra layer to protect ourselves as users or protect ourselves as, as, as civilians if we had an economic regulatory framework that allowed the regulator to have much more influence on how the cost structure of ESCOM is. I hope I have. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take this conversation slightly further and look at the, the, the proposed configuration of ESCOM. Um, and, and what role do you think, now that ESCOM is likely to split into different units, uh, i.e. transmission, distribution, and generation, um, what role potentially, now that we're obviously in the process of assessing and reconfiguring um, ESCOM to a point where it becomes and sustainable, and we don't have the loose that we're seeing uh, today. Um, from a regulator point of view, what do you think the role of the regulator ought to be in the new environment where we are going to see ESCOM being, being divided into three units? I think first and foremost there should be an engagement between the regulator and the shareholder. On the one side, the shareholder is saying, if I split this business into three components, I think it will operate efficiently. And typically as a regulator, I would be glad if that happens, because then what it means is that the costs that get transferred to the users are then minimized. So there's a common interest from that perspective. However, if at the end of the day, those costs or those proposed potential cost reductions do not realize, then there must be an argument that says, shareholder, if those cost reductions do not realize, then you as a shareholder must pay for the difference. And that's something that can be agreed between the regulator and the shareholder. And nothing precludes such, such, a, such an understanding between the two. So in other words, strictly speaking, the regulator cannot dictate on how the business should be run. The shareholder must have the right to make those decisions. But the shareholder cannot make those decisions willingly to the extent that they now disadvantage the users. Because if that happens, then ESCOM is truly functioning like a monopoly, which is what economic regulation is trying to stop. Economic regulation is trying to stop ESCOM from functioning like a monopoly where they charge whatever tariff that suits them. Well, as ESCOM can be as inefficient as they like, and therefore they will never be punished for that, because whatever inefficiencies that they, they build up, all those inefficiencies are just transferred to the user. So the regulator is there to stop that, but that does not happen. So and the person who might have to bear the brunt of, of, um, of any inefficiencies that happen must then become the shareholder. Finally, uh, if the shareholder's interest is obviously unbundling what, what is perceived to be a monopoly uh, from the regulation point of view, um, what, you know, this is obviously bound to raise a question around privatization. Uh, for example, one of the callers um, just posed a question saying, what can electricity uh, be privatized? What would be your, your, your view on that in the context of the proposed um, you know, unbundling of ESCOM? Well, it depends I mean, on, on, on what in, in granular form privatization means. Because if it's privatized, it could still be a monopoly even if it's privatized. And my simple understanding is that even if it's generation, the generation could be monopolized if, well, if there's no inclusion of independent public users. So you could have monopoly in production, you could have monopoly in transmission, you could have some form of monopoly in distribution. So 
the need to still have a regulator must still be there, regardless of whether you unbundle ESCOM or not. Because the basis on which you decide whether you want economic regulator or not is not how the business is arranged, but rather whether there's, economic, there's, 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 there's monopoly or not. And when there's monopoly, then there's a national edge or a national desire and, and to, to economically regulate. But that's a decision, in my view, that the shareholder would make. But if I was the regulator, I would say you're free to make whatever decision that you want to make as a shareholder because you're an executive authority over ESCOM. So that's fine. But if the decisions that you make have negative consequences to the users, then I will not transfer those costs to the users. I'll give the tariff to ESCOM that I feel is fair based on what ESCOM should have performed from an efficiency perspective. But in a national sense, that always leads to tension between the shareholder and the regulator. Which then results into questions whether then the regulator is independent of the, the shareholder. Because in practical terms, you find that the, the shareholder appoints the regulator. Even if the regulator is supposed to make independent decisions um, from the shareholder. So that's where the tension could, could, could happen. But I'm saying we'd rather have that tension because what that tension demonstrates is that the system is healthy. Because if that tension does not exist, I'm more worried that that, that would create the impression that actually if either the, the shareholder doesn't know what he's doing, what she's doing, or the regulator has been captured by the shareholder, which would create the problem. So it's, it's, that's what I'm saying. In a practical way, the best thing to do would be for the shareholder to say, Mr. Regulator, this is what I intend to do. And this is what I expect the benefits to be. Then I would say as a regulator, okay, if that's what you expect, I will hold you to it. Not to be if, that, if that which you promise doesn't happen or doesn't realize, I'm still going to hold you to it. In other words, if there's a difference, then you must find money somewhere to pay for the difference. In other words, you might have to forfeit your dividends, or you might have to pay back some of the dividends that ESCOM has paid. I'm not, I, 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 honestly, I'm not clear if ESCOM has paid any dividends at all to the shareholder in any of the financial years or in the last few financial years. No. So I don't know. But what I'm trying to make is that engagement or that stance by the regulator will force the holder shareholder to think twice. Not only think twice, but also do his shareholder activism differently. Because that's part of maybe the other failure that, that, that has happened here is that the shareholder activism has failed. Absolutely. Unfortunately, uh, Martin Mulatti, thank you very much for your insight. It's an absolute pleasure to be on board. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. You, you're welcome. There you go. You have Dr. Mulatti, who is a civil engineer who specializes in transport as well as planning, giving us insight as to what is the role of regulator and extent to which regulator cannot be divorced from mishaps that we've seen at Let's take a little comment in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Dumar Mbele. What comment is now 12 to 6 o'clock, um, to 7 o'clock. Um, we just had a very interesting conversation with Mulatti Mutonimsi, who is a civil engineer specializing in transport and planning. He was giving us a very interesting perspective when you look at the continuum, of this continuum, um, which includes obviously the regulator. He's used that the regulator in the context of, in the context of uh, ESCOM, which is NASA. The regulator have exerted more power, more influence, particularly on financial prudence. Um, his view is that um, NASA has not been able you know, to exercise pressure or diligence around financial prudence. Um, and, and for me, that's my name is Martin Bello, and I welcome your thought and can see some SMS coming through. One of the SMS that came through a while ago, uh, the question is asked, I'm sure this will answer the question is, you know, uh, who are the shareholders um, for ESCOM? Well, the shoulders are you and I, uh, but you know, the government takes care of, 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 of that. But the government is the shoulder. Uh, you could see, look at the difference and say, you know, you're not a shoulder as a first one. Precisely. I couldn't agree with you more. We have ceded powers to, to authority, uh, hence, um, you know, we vote from time to time. Uh, ESCOM is a public utility, um, and, and we have entrusted that public utility to the authority that, that um, uh, we have invested our, in our, our, our you know, collective um, votes to. Uh, moving forward, um, I just want to perfectly just quickly reflect on his pattern point, and I, I think it was quite interesting when he used a comparison with AXA, that AXA is supposedly a beacon of light when it comes to financial prudence, and the extent to which AXA has been, I mean, I, I know for the fact that AXA has been paying dividends to the shareholder, and I know for the fact that when you are when you're running at a loss, there's no need to pay dividends. In fact, you're asking, you know, the, 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 the shareholder for more money, as someone asking for more money. Um, so, which means there's something wrong there. But, but in the context of the proposed reconfiguration, i.e., in the form of a generation transmission, um, you know, do you think we're more likely to be more stable? I actually like the idea of splitting ESCOM into, into three parts. Uh, because what, what it will do is it will bring focus on, on each business unit. Let's call it that. Um, let's say, for instance, there are three of them, and one unit it looks for is looking for funding, for instance. There will be funding for that specific uh, unit, uh, and not the whole thing. Because ESCOM is going to be too huge um, to, uh, to run efficiently, uh, in my view. Once you don't split it into these three business units that they're talking about, I think uh, it, it will be uh, it will better run because there will be a lot more focus uh, on, on each business unit, uh, and it will be easier to get funding as well. I, I, think, I, mean, I think it makes a lot of sense to split, um, you know, in fact, most people have been you know, propagating for, for the split yeah. of uh, different units at ESCOM. But, but here's a, a challenge uh, in, in the same way, and I think we have to sort of touch on that. One is that the fact that we have transmission as a unit on its own um, doesn't necessarily mean that it cannot operate as a monopoly. Yeah, and and, and that's one of the very interesting points because ultimately reconfiguration uh, from the business model point of view makes a lot of sense. However, the, some of the challenges that have engulfed ESCOM at this point in time does not necessarily mean they will not be absent, you know, uh, in, the, in, 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 in the future uh, configuration. 
you, I mean, you, you, you still have them as monopolies, uh, even though they've been split into three. You know, so that, that's, that's, a, that's a different discussion uh, for me. Um, but the, the, the thing for me with splitting them is, is absolute focus on, on each business unit. So that you, don't, you don't conflate, uh, you don't mix all of these in, in one pot. Because these businesses are huge. I mean, you can, you can split them into three and still have them, either all of them or, some, or one or two of them as, as, as monopolies. Because that's a different discussion, whether they remain monopolies or not, after splitting. But the, the split will achieve the focus that, that SCOM actually requires right now. Well, I think I, I, I agree with you in that when we are splitting, I mean, everybody's been more than about it, that the business model that SCOM is not sustainable. Because, I mean, and everything goes to one pot. But when you split them, you're more likely to run them efficiently. Yeah. In that every unit can account for each balance sheet. And, and, and on the basis of how it is being managed, uh, it is more likely to raise sufficient revenues that will go to the fiscus. Um, from that point of view, it makes a lot of sense. But, but it is yet to be seen, you know, um, given the, the complexity of, of my governance that we've seen today, um, particularly, you know, you know, when, when you want to get the possible role that uh, the regulator should play in a, in a new environment. But for me, I'm what could be the ideal uh, gesture which the regulator needs to put forward to mitigate the risk that we've seen today? To me, it's just, all this put together boils down to, to, to one thing, and, and that's really is, is, is good governance. Um, Expecting, you know, your never saw as, as a regulator, the boards, the problem three now, plus the fourth one being the holding company's board. Um, just being accountable and then let people do, you know, make people do their jobs. Um, you know, we, we, you know, we spoke about splitting them, uh, it making sense. But, you know, the question is, once that's happened, uh, who actually sits on the board? Who actually gets to run these, these, um, these three different companies? What is the accountability going to look like? I'm talking about the board oversight, etc. Uh, because we, in this space, we, where we are now, because of um, this lack of, of accountability, people being sitting on, you know, the boards, not perhaps doing what they should be doing. Really, I mean, for me, that, that, that it boils down to that. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, um, because ultimately, um, one got one thing right. One is the, the business model is changing, uh, for the better, at least at the first level, but as to how it will turn out in practice, it is, it is, it is, it is to be seen. Yeah. Or yet to be seen. But, um, again, the role of the shareholder, um, which has been really, you know, called into question, because the shareholder's role, uh, or shareholder activism, um, has not been forthright. Because some of these issues that we've seen today, um, happen under the rules of the shareholder. Yes, we understood that there's been changing of the minister from this to that and that minister. I mean, um, you know, that the ministers had seen about three or four ministers into the very short space of time. That one is on its own, creates problems and creates accountability loopholes, um, on the side of the board as well as the relatives, uh, when we're like, uh, so, so this is a point where stability at any level is quite important, because when we stability at the shareholder level, um, over a period of time, then we're able to see consistency in terms of some of the decisions that have been taken. But when we don't have stability at the shareholder level, i.e., this minister, that minister, that minister, there is no way in which SCOM can run even if we have different um, units, distribution, uh, generation, and transmission, first of all, is going to have instability at the shoulder level, which will, in my view, you know, uh, permeate into the thinking of the psyche of different boards. Yeah, I mean, we can draw a parallel to what you just said now, uh, to what uh, the FTG uh, president said yesterday, uh, about this lack of stability at the political level. Um, I mean, he made uh, a comment that he, he doesn't want to lose um, scared staff, experienced people uh, in treasury, because of the stability at the top. So, you could take it to ESCOM, the same thing. Um, you, you know, you could restructure it as much as you want, but if there's no support, let's at, at, at the relevant levels. It, it will come to naught. Absolutely, I But you know, from analysis and from where you're sitting, as somebody who has insight on uh, the turnaround, because recombination of ESCOM to these three units fundamentally touches on a, a bigger turnaround strategy. What are the preconditions that would make the turnaround be more successful? One, you've pointed out to stability um, at, at the shareholder level. What are the considerations that um, one needs to think about as a precondition for any successful turnaround, uh, let alone that of ESCOM? I can give you one now. Uh, the, you know, we, the, these three units will, will have to be staffed by, by experienced people with you know, um, relevant skills um, in, in, in all respects. Uh, you know, that would dovetail with the uh, you know, stability at the top, the board, because uh, stability is not just about the shareholder level. Uh, also, we have to have a board that um, has a little skill, um, you know, experienced, you know, personality as well. Um, and then, basically, this is a whole setup in um, stable. But here's another big challenge. I mean, we've seen um, a political interference or, or perceived political interference. Uh, in this, you can have, I mean, now we're saying in the new location of ESCOM, um, you put together some of the preconditions for a successful turnaround. But can a successful turnaround be immune from political interference? Or political manipulation? Because that's one big issue that uh, it's almost like a lesson in the room. Um, because there are a lot of thoughts or theories around what originally led to the collapse of, um, of ESCOM because there was a lot of interference. For example, uh, the former DT pointed out to, you know, um, expenditures, proposed expenditures that were not informed by due diligence. Ordinarily, you cannot incur costs up to trillion rent and come back enough for money if you've not done your plans properly. So that was the result of political interference because executives had no need to stand on because it was too pressured to take that. The question is, to what extent, um, because we can have all the 
Again, the best of the best, first known as police interference, it is from the perspective of what we've gathered to date in the form of Osama Dulce's operation, particularly from the submission of Fuzile. How do you navigate the political interference? There's a party short. It's a very difficult thing to call, um, because as much as I spoke about, spoke about scale, the need for scale, the need for stability, board, you know, but if you have a continuous interference from the politicians, you will have stability. It's really as simple as that. And National Treasury is a very good example of that. Uh, we had what um, uh, Fuzile said yesterday, we had what the two ministers and, 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 and Praveen Quran, uh, when they made their own uh, testimonies, had to say, as long as that, you will, as long as you get interference uh, from the politicians, you will have stability. The fact that we have uh, experienced executives uh, in these entities will not help. I think it was acting at some of time before they actually leave for, for, for more stable environments. Unfortunately, we're not leaving this, you know, um, so thank you very much for your time. I wish you had more time because we were going into much more deeper into these issues. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on board. I'll give you another day. Okay, cheers, thanks very much. Thank you.